You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. So uh, today we are very pleased to introduce uh, Professor Badesky, who is going to give the talk on the secret history of the Mongols, which I'm personally really interested in. Turn it over to Professor Badesky. Thank you very much, Dawn. Um, one thing I'm very proud of, and you didn't mention that I'm an honorary Kentucky Colonel. So <laughs> no, no entitlements involved, however. Um, okay, uh, let's get down to business. I um, I've been looking at the state as a political entity for most of my professional career. And um, I, I, I uh, see it as the core of uh, all political phenomena. Uh, yet its dynamics and essence have remained elusive. Walter Russell Mead recently wrote an article, and um, he reminded us that the nation state, defective as it is, is the foundation of European law and solidarity. So there's, there's something about the state that is intriguing, particularly um, we, we don't, particularly in the United States, although it is part of our name, it is not um, very much present in, in our mind. Uh, I've been mostly interested in the Asian state, how it has developed. I, I wrote a book a few years ago on the Chinese state. I've, um, my, my dissertation a long time ago was on the Guomindang state in China, how a warlord period uh, was followed by a semi-democratic uh, re republic, and then in 1949 by the People's Republic of China. So the transition of, of states from one form to another um, has uh, been at the center of much of my work and writing. I became interested in the, the Mongols, particularly uh, through the secret history of the Mongols because it contains a unique narrative of state building, the how and why of Mongol emergence from marginal and impoverished uh, nomadism to becoming the second largest empire in the world in, in, in world history. I've, uh, I've uh, looked at this and um, uh, as, as Bell mentioned in my writing, I'm looking at human, or I, I have looked at and taught courses on human security, I've written on human security, but um, human security as a concept has tended to be sort of welfareism writ large. That is, although it, it uh, takes or it uh, claims to take away the concept of security away from the state and, and away from the military, it still applies it to large collections of, of people. So. Um, I gave a paper in Stockholm a couple of years ago, and somebody suggested that I'm not talking about human security, I'm talking about human life security. And really that's, that's true, because I'm looking at how is it possible that um, people who live at, on the margins of society, or before there was a civil society, or nomads like the Mongols, how were they able to survive? What, what protected them? What security did they have? And by the way, the, the term security, until about 1942, the term was not applied to any organizations. It was 
it was um, exclusively a personal thing. That is, personal security, the sense of well-being, sense of having protection. And it was only uh, in the 20th century that we began to think of security as national security, state security, homeland security, and all the rest of it. So what I'm doing is really um, going back to the original meaning of security when I, when I talk about the, uh, the concept. Mongolia is particularly interesting because it barely existed as a political entity before the birth of Genghis Khan. Um, uh, by the time of his death in 1227, it had become an empire. So what we have is the state formation that is compressed into a single lifetime. And it, it, uh, it accomplished in one lifetime what took uh, generations and centuries in, in most other other states. So it's, it's a kind of um, uh, prism through which we can understand state building. Um, during his lifetime, a motley collection of clans and tribes became a united army nation under a sovereign Khan. The biography of every state is inscribed on U.S. coinage, e pluribus unum. Anybody know what that means? It's Latin for one out of many, correct. But um, the phrase out of many begs the question of many what? Is it, uh, are the units um, tribes, provinces, city-states? What are they? Whatever the answer, we agree that the state begins with human individuals. And the purpose is to protect the lives and property of subjects and citizens. Uh, when Cicero, the, the uh, Roman statesman, described the state, he said its, it's first responsibility is to protect uh, property. In the sense, the state has no substance of its own. That is, nobody's ever seen a state. Nobody's ever touched one. Nobody's ever smelled one. Uh, it's, it's an idea. Uh, maybe it's an illusion, as um, uh, one uh, philosopher said. The state is an arrangement of mortal souls who adapt their behavior to the illusion of a powerful entity under which rulers and government and officials make and enforce laws, they take tribute and taxes, they wage war, they control territory and people, and they celebrate unity. So the state is a, a set of behavioral imperatives, if you will, but it does not have an independent existence. Um, what I'm trying to get at is that human life is more real than the state which has been constructed to protect it. Philosophers and theologians have long pondered the tragic comedy of human existence because each individual is born, lives, and then dies. Life is first a physical fact and is maintained by constant effort and material inputs. Humans have been rational, emotional, and devious in constructing institutions to enhance life length. A reading of the secret history of the Mongols reveals how one individual's quest to survive led to formation of a state. But his, uh, his accomplishment did not include the construction of a civil society. We live in a civil society. We, um, uh, we behave according to its dictates. But uh, the Mongols never quite got to that point. The quest for security is key to understanding the primary existential dimension of being, that of physical life and longevity, which the state claims to protect and improve. In um, 
the, the novel is uh, Nausea by Sartre. The main character uh, complains that when his body dies, everything that he's ever thought, all his experiences are gone. They just dissipate. Uh, there, there's the recognition that physical existence is the foundation of, of being. Um, security is the existential bedrock of each person's life. Each human life is bracketed by none being before birth and none being after life's termination. Longevity is measured in terms of time. It is a completely physical phenomenon and is largely determined by security inputs. Throughout history, most people, most of the time, spend their lives benefiting from security inputs and launching security outputs for the purpose of prolonging life and postponing death of self and others. This will be illustrated with incidents from the secret history, but first let us consider methodology. Uh, yeah. So <clears throat> what I lay out are, are two ways of understanding uh, human existence. First is, is uh, the approach of being. Uh, and this focuses on, on essences. Plato, of course, uh, thought there was an ideal truth, that ideas uh, were permanent and eternal. Um, Max Weber, the German sociologist in the, in the uh, first part of the 20th century, um, laid out ideal types that were charismatic, uh, bureaucratic, um, and other, other types of ideal types of, of uh, government and societies. And David Sneed, I'll, I'll refer to him in a minute, uh, is also in this school that you try to get the definitions right, you try to, get, you try to discover what essences are. The other, the other way of approaching uh, the existential dilemma is to look at becoming. That is, there's constant change. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus uh, said you cannot dip your hand into the same river twice. It's, it's always changing. Um, this was picked up by uh, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, and Heidegger, other uh, philosophers. So there's, there's these two ways of, of looking at, at life. And I call my approach a security existential approach. Um, there are two philosophical choices here, being and becoming. And an example of the being approach is David's, uh, David Sneath's notion of a headless state. He disputes application of the idea of unitary states to nomad societies. He sees nomad societies as acephalous states, that is, headless states. It's an approach to get the definitions right, a worthwhile activity, but one which may not do justice to the, to the uh, dynamics of state formation. Here's what David Sneath writes. There is an influential strand in Euro-American social sciences in which uh, which essentializes the state as a single timeless form, closely identified with its titular head. But steppe society was stratified for much of its history, and the study of these aristocratic orders demonstrates the implausibility of the dichotomous distinction between state and non-state societies. Uh, so so Sneath is um, he's saying that these essentialists who, who say that the state had, uh, in essence, were wrong, but then he, he says, well, I'm going to redefine the state. But again, he's coming back to an essentialist definition. The second approach, oriented to an understanding of becoming, seeks to understand change in human affairs and existence. 
This is uh, Martin Heidegger, the uh, German philosopher on Nietzsche. All being is for Nietzsche a becoming. Such becoming, however, has the character of action and the activity of willing, but in its essence, will is the will to power. That expression names what Nietzsche thinks when he asks the guiding question of philosophy. I, I want you to uh, remember this, this notion of will. It's so important in the way we think, uh, the way we see ourselves, whether we have free will or not, whether our life length, whether, whether our destiny is, is determined or whether we have some input into it. Um, and, and I'll, I'll uh, elaborate on this a little bit later. While this passage may seem light years away from Sneed and social science, it declares a major dichotomy in methods, namely, uh, namely being and becoming. The being approach seeks essences, and every Platonist knows that essences are eternal. In contrast, the approach of becoming follows Heraclitus, in that forms are constantly changing, uh, with Nietzsche adding that man and his will are both the generators and the objects of persistent transformation. Looking at human life as becoming rather than being offers a more dynamic view of human relations in which we do not ask, what is man? But instead we ask, how do we get to this place in time and, and place and what might be next? So becoming is a much more dynamic way of, of uh, looking at um, ourselves and the world we live in. Another difference is that social science prides itself on scientific method, seeking essences in political phenomena. And understanding of becoming is facilitated by literary analysis, looking for transformation, nuance, narrative, character development, cause, and effect. It is in this spirit that I approached the secret history of the Mongols, and I sought to extract incidents that, um, uh, who, which have meaning uh, in order to refine an, a theory which comprehends existential life as life protection. Moving on to the secret history of the, of the Mongols, um, there's a great deal of scholarship done on this because, uh, number one, because it's secret, and number two, because it has been lost in, in, in its original form. And so over several centuries, actually, scholars have dedicated their professional lives to decoding or to uh, to uh, reconstructing this uh, secret history, which was not published, but was kept for the, the ruling um, clan and family for their own uh, enlightenment and erudition. The, um, the structure of the secret history is almost biblical. That is, uh, there, there's a kind of Old Testament in which um, there, there's the creation of the Mongol people, the mating of a wolf and a doe. Um, and then it tells some stories about the patriarchs of the Mongols, how the clans were organized or were, were uh, generated. But basically, it's a scattered people, nomads uh, who hunt, who raise livestock, who are living on the, the edge of, of existence. So that's the first part. And then uh, almost in a, in a kind of New Testament um, sense, Temujin is born. Uh, he's born to uh, a mother who had been kidnapped by his father from another tribe. And um, in his hand, when the baby's hand, is a blood clot. And this has special significance 
in Central Asian uh, um, culture. In the Quran, for example, uh, a blood clot is specified as the beginning of all life. And we find this, this image again in uh, the birth of Temujin. So uh, the second part of the, um, of the secret history is uh, the, um, the birth and youth of Temujin, who later becomes Genghis Khan, of course. And um, the third section consists of the alliances, the battles, uh, the depredations of the tribal wars. The state is not yet formed. The state does not form until 1206 for, uh, for the Mongols. And finally, the, the final section of the secret history consists of um, the uh, foundation of the state. The book, uh, if we can call it a book, is incomplete. There are parts missing. Somebody had deleted all the parts related. There's a chapter about Mongol women, and that was deleted for some, some reason. And um, much of it has been put together by reference to other descriptions of the Mongols, of um, uh, philology, trying to reconstruct words and, and sections. Uh, what were the implications of certain words? Some sections were were, were characterized uh, or were uh, written in Chinese, or they're preserved in Chinese. And so the, the Chinese sounds had to be applied to medieval Mongol language. There were also Persian, other languages that were needed to reconstruct it. So it's, it's really a marvelous uh, reconstruction. It's not something that has been um, handed down intact. Um, and this one is um, about 20 years ago. Uh, and um, I, I think I may be the first one to give it intensive uh, political interpretation. So it's been fun. The, um, the book itself contains at least four different storylines. Let's see if I have that here. Uh, yeah. Um, so as a, as, a, as a narrative, there's first uh, Temujin's conflict with the Merikit. The Merikit were a tribe in um, eastern Mongolia. They had, um, they, they, they were very strong, they were predatory. And um, the conflict starts with the father of uh, Temujin. His name was Yusuge. And Yusuge was out riding one day and he saw a, um, a Merikit man uh, with, and there was a cart uh, accompanying him. And he saw this beautiful girl in the cart. Um, and um, Yusuge says, that's for me. And, and he went and got his two brothers, brought them, and they, they started attacking the cart. Uh, and um, the, the woman in the cart was, was, na was named uh, Brita, um, excuse me, Herlin. And uh, she, um, she says, run away. Uh, she was being married to this American man by the name of Chiladu. And she says, run away. You can always find another woman to be your wife. And then she takes off a blouse and she gives it to him and says, but you always think of me. I carry the scent of my body with you. So he, uh, discretion was the better part of valor. He ran away or he rode away uh, and left um, Herlin for the, uh, for the wiles of, uh, of um, Yusuge. They mate, and uh, the, the, uh, the product is uh, Temujin. Temujin was named after a Tartar prisoner that, is, uh, that he had taken. And um, they, uh, they set up family. He has uh, subordinate wives as well. And so the, you have the formation of uh, Temujin's um, family. 
this is an important incident because um, uh, nearly two decades later, uh, the, the family, uh, by this time, uh, Yosuke had died. He had been poisoned by some Tartars. That's the next conflict. And um, the, the, um, the uh, Merikit want to avenge the kidnapping of Hurden. And so while, the, uh, while Temujin's family is isolated, the, the, the Merikit come, they steal her, they abduct her. Uh, she is made the wife of the younger brother of Chilidu, and they take their revenge. But the story doesn't end there because then Temujin is, is unhappy about this whole thing, and uh, he's not going to let his, his wife be abducted by this, this, uh, this uh, old tribe that has a grudge against him. So he calls on two of his friends, uh, Jemaka and Togrel, actually blood brothers. Jemaka was blood brother uh, to Temujin. Togrel was blood brother to Temujin's father. And so the three of them form an alliance. They get their armies together. They attack the Merikit. They take back Hurlin from the Merikit and destroy the, the Merikit power. So these stories snowball into major political events in the story of, of the um, the Mongols. The second one, the Mongols uh, versus the Tartars. The Tartars were also a very powerful Central Asian tribe. They had control of silver mines, and um, they were allied with the uh, the Chinese rulers, the uh, the Jin. And the Chinese policy towards Central Asia beyond the, the Great Wall was to use barbarians to control the barbarians. In this sense, they used the Tartars to keep down to to repress any signs of uh, rebellion against uh, the, uh, the Chinese uh, domination. Um, the, uh, the Tartars had um, captured the, uh, the great-grandfather, a man by the name of Kabul, of uh, Temujin. They had crucified him, and so, the, um, so there, there was this uh, blood feud against the Tartars, which uh, which Temujin uh, avenged. And so the, one of the continuing stories in the, in the secret history is that the conflict. The Temujin-Jamaka uh, conflict originally began as an alliance. They were blood brothers at a very young age. Um, they, together, they, they had um, defeated the Merikit. And then somewhere along the way, uh, Temujin's wife said, don't trust Jamaka. He is trying to dominate you. And so they, they separate their camps, and other things happen. And eventually, after, they, after Temujin defeats the Tartars in America and some of the other tribes, he's faced with Jamaka, who also wants to be Khan of all the, the Mongols. They fight, and uh, Jamaka is defeated. He flees, he's captured, and he's executed. The fourth uh, story in the, uh, in the secret history is the, the uh, alliance between the uh, the uh, Karyat of Togrel and the Mongols of Temujin. Togrel was a Nestorian Christian, uh, by the way, and um, in uh, I, I saw a, a Chinese version of um, the secret history, a Chinese film version, and the the gear of uh, Togrel has a cross on, on, on and there was um, quite a bit of widespread Christianity among the Central Asian tribes. Uh, even though we, we tend to think of them as either Buddhist 
or, um, or Muslim. So um, getting back to my original point that um, to, to use the, the becoming approach rather than being, Temujin was not born to the purple. Uh, he achieved it first by surviving, second by forming tribal alliances, and third by defeating his enemies and uniting the tribes under a single sovereign. The tales offered political lessons to his successors, that is the secret history, instruction which was a central intention of writing that history. In that respect, it was a hortatory constitution in the sense that it urged action rather than behavior. Uh, it urged motion rather than standing still. Temujin's personal struggles and tribal battles set the stage and trajectory for the Mongol state. It prolonged life because of security arrangements and actions. Temujin prayed to and thanked Tengli, the supreme deity, for sparing his life when he was pursued by an enemy. When he became commander of thousands of warriors, he relied on a large bodyguard corps to protect what he called his golden life. That is, uh, for Genghis Khan, his greatest possession was not his family, was not his material possession, but his, his life. And the whole narrative of the secret history uh, centers around this, how he was endangered, how he was attacked, how he was uh, injured, how, how he was uh, nearly assassinated on several occasions, and how he built up bodyguards to protect himself. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very um, uh, primeval kind of motivation, if you will. Okay, in analyzing the, uh, the existential theme, I begin with several assumptions concerning man and the state. Um, there's, uh, this, is, this is how I outline the, um, the secret history. That is, first of all, we have portrayal of Temujin in the state of nature. Um, there were, there's a story, there's several stories that were, uh, that would describe him as an autonomous natural man. He, he reacted, uh, from feelings of vengeance, from emotions of, of, uh, self-protection and so forth. Um, secondly, he exists in organic society, which is basically clan and tribe, of, uh, existence. And, and third, uh, the story after 1206 is Chinggis Khan in the state. These, um, I have some, I start with some premises. Uh, most important one, I think, is that every state and every ind human and individual is an experiment. The difference is that, an ex that the individual exists only for a limited lifetime, but the state persists much longer. Um, so the important thing is, and, and particularly in the, um, the secret history, there's the sense that the writer is saying to the Mongol rulers, this is what happened in the past. And uh, there's some cues here that will help you in the future. But there, there's always going to be change, and you have to adapt to these changes. Uh, and so um, the, uh, the secret history is kind of a guideline, or at least um, it's not merely a story for entertainment. It is a guide to where the Mongols came from, where they might go, 
and how to deal with, with crises uh, as they would certainly occur. The second point here is that uh, states and individuals all have beginnings and ends. Every experiment in state building will, uh, will fail. Third, states are human creations. They, uh, they have no independent existence outside human will. The ontological status of a state is zero compared to rocks, trees, and humans. Um, thanks for your cheers. <laughs> um, <clears throat> organic society is a form of association located between natural man and the state. Uh, that is, I, I see a, actually there's, from our standpoint, there are four levels of existence. First, each of us exists as a natural person. We're physical. We have certain intuitions and so forth. Secondly, we exist in organic society. That is, we have friends, we have relatives, we have kin. We, we come from a bloodline, if you will, and um, some of us or all of us will produce uh, future uh, descendants. So there's a, there's a kind of, and, and we re rely on face-to-face -face, uh, relationship. We do not uh, worry about obeying laws or something. That comes a third level of existence, which is in the state, in the sovereign state, which makes laws, which has laws, which has means of enforcement, which uh, collects taxes, which makes wars, and so forth. The state is a separate level of existence. And some of us are keyed up about the current elections in the US. Um, and, and that is uh, a kind of level of existence which we can, uh, we can join or we can ignore if, if we wish. But the purpose of the state is to protect us. It is for security. It, it should um, help us extend our lifetimes. Um, organic society and the state are constructed for the purpose of human life security, which I define as prolonging life, postponing death, or PLPD. Uh, construction of society and state consists of establishing habitual patterns of cooperation, more voluntary and spontaneous in society, more organized and enforced in the state. Uh, number six, civil society depends upon prior formation of the state, which is based on organic society, which in turn is founded on the physical, physical existence of man. Again, um, I turn to the secret history for, for validation of this. That is, first there are physical people uh, because of interaction, because of seeking protection, there is a, another layer of protection, which is organic society. And finally, the state emerges. And finally, finally, civil society, which we recognize as our own level of existence. Um, the other ones, I refer to Descartes, cogito ergo sum. Uh, each of us has proof of our existence, but we have no proof of society's existence as Margaret Thatcher famously said, there is no such thing as society. That's true. I mean, it's, and the same thing about the state. There is no such thing as the state. It's, um, it's a kind of enforced illusion, if I can be so, so bold. Finally, natural man possesses rationality and free will in the area of life security. It takes responsibility for his life within environmental parameters, which may be physical, natural, social, and political. So, 
Given these premises, I focus my inquiry on how Temujin, the future Genghis Khan, acquired enough security to live to old age in a very perilous environment. That's how was he able to, to uh, deal with all these things, all these people that were attacking him. And um, I've been to Mongolia a number of times. Even, uh, even today, uh, once you leave the city, it's a pretty primeval environment. The steppe, the desert, the forests, uh, you're, you're pretty much alone. And you think of that kind of situation where many of the, the uh, early Mongols had to, uh, had to deal with. Uh, Genghis Khan was constantly exposed to danger, including capture, accident, battle injury, assassination, and disease. Yet he repeatedly escaped. Some might invoke cosmic randomness or destiny or fate, if you will. I prefer to explore his own actions and attitudes as primary contributing factors. Uh, it would not be a stretch to say that he wanted to live as long as possible and to unify the Mongol people under his family. This is a will of life which is universal among all higher organisms. The history recounts several incidents where he strongly fought to preserve his existence. He was, he was captured by the Tayachut and um, he was um, bound up. Um, he had this kangan, where his, you know, one of these wooden things where his head is out and his hands are in there. And, and so uh, he was, every day he would be moved to a different camp and he'd have a different uh, guard. And one night the, uh, the Tayachid were having a uh, festival. Uh, he had a young, inexperienced guard, and so he, he hit him and knocked him down. And so he ran with his thing and he jumped in the river. Um, he floated down the river, was able to escape the, uh, the Tayachut. This, um, this escape really kind of defines the man uh, as so he certainly was not a, a uh, passive fatalist. I mean, he, he said, I have a chance to, to live, to escape. He didn't know if the Tayachut were going to kill him or not. He assumed they would. And so he, he went back, he was able to get back to his, his family. When you strip away the friends, family, uh, institutions from any person in civil society, uh, he exists only as natural man, naked before nature and predatory men and animals with only his strength and cunning as protection. And here I have the image of the Hobbesian natural man, uh, man living in a, in, a, in a state of nature which is uh, nasty, brutish, and short, or as one person said, nasty, British, and short. <laughs> um, so this is the primary level of existence, this physical existence in the state of nature. We think of our selfhood as autonomous existence. We think of, particularly in the West, I think we, we tend to see, see ourselves more as autonomous creatures rather uh, in much else of the world where people see themselves uh, as part of extended relationships. There's, there's a more collective sense of, of identity. Um, but our, our autonomous existence consists of a complex of skin boundary body, personal relations, and compliance with laws and government coercion. Freud, among others, demonstrated that the self is not a unity, but has conscious and unconscious components. By examining the web of life preservation actions, I believe that the multiple generations preceding modern man 
have constructed levels of existence beyond those allotted to natural man. So as I mentioned, we have these three levels of existence in the secret history. Fundamental is what Schopenhauer called the will to life. And at each of the three levels of existence, let's see if I can go here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just go off of this one. Um, so we exist at three different levels. Uh, there's our natural physical level, organic society, as I mentioned, uh, with our face-to-face -face relations. Markets uh, are part of this organic society. Um, and then the state. And in each of these levels of existence, there are these security action platforms. That is, we, we don't survive merely because uh, God is good or because we're so great and, and we have this destiny. No, there, we have actions. We take actions. And we only take actions because we have these platforms. First of all, is the will to survive. Uh, we have a, a, a baby who doesn't want, uh, has no sense of, of fighting for life will probably expire. Uh, an individual who has uh, deep depression may be may tend to to lose this this will to life. Family is another platform where actions are taken, particularly during infancy and childhood. The, the family, uh, even uh, in the state of nature will protect the life of, of uh, the children. Practical knowledge. Um, in the state of nature, I mean, if, if you're out there in the, in the cascades and there's nobody around and you have to fend for yourself, you, you, should, you should learn, uh, if, if you don't carry uh, some practical knowledge with you, you probably will not last too long. Um, there's a fascinating film came out a few years ago, uh, The Edge. And it was about a plane crash in the wilderness. Three men um, initially survived. The pilot dies, and um, the the old the older man, uh, his hobby is is reading Boy Scout books and survival manuals and things like that. And so he knows how to make a compass out of a needle and knows how to find food and so forth. Um, in the case of, uh, of uh, Timogen. Every Mongol boy had to learn how to track animals. And one time, the, uh, eight horses were stolen from the family encampment. And so Temujin and Boorchu were able to follow, for three or four days, follow the tracks of, of uh, the horses that were lost and eventually retake them. So that was another skill. Uh, archery was another one. Every, every uh, boy and every girl, actually, had to learn to use the, the uh, Composite bow, which, which requires a very powerful set of muscles to, uh, to shoot. Um, equestrian, horseback riding, how to handle horses and livestock. These were also practical skills that one had to know within the state of nature, just, just to survive in many of these encampments. The, the Mongols were not an urban people. They were nomads, very, um, had a, had a uh, very sparse population, as it does today. There's only about 2.8 uh, million Mongols living in Mongolia today. So the, um, the the low population density meant that people had to depend on their own resources or their family, their initial family. Um, and practical knowledge, as I mentioned, whether it's caring for sheep or horses, uh, caring for oneself, knowing 
how to hunt, how to shoot the shoot an arrow, and uh, personal combat. Wrestling is still a very big sport in uh, in Mongolia today. Self defense. Um, there, somewhere along the way, later, this is another uh, detour here. After the um, death of uh, Chinggis Khan, there was a succession of his sons and grandsons, and there was one princess, one Mongol princess, who was, uh, she could beat any man in archery or in horseback riding or in wrestling. And um, she, she, she would take suitors. Uh, Somebody wanted to marry her. Yeah, come on, wrestle me, shoot me, shoot uh, bow and arrow, and she would win. Each time they, a suitor would, would have to um, put up a thousand horses as uh, as uh, serious uh, backing. And uh, apparently she she was never beaten in wrestling. So today, if you go to a wrestling match in uh, Mongolia, uh, the men will they, they wear these little vests and, and they will dance. They'll go around like this. And I thought, okay, well, this is an imitation of eagles. I thought eagles were, but no. And what I found out is that it's to show that they don't have breasts; that they're men. They're, they're not women wrestlers. Wrestlers. So uh, uh, a little bit of trivia there. And and the women wrestlers? Uh, you don't see them. They they uh, they will have archery contests. But, yeah. But they don't. I haven't seen any women wrestlers. Uh, not on on uh, that side of the the Pacific, anyhow. So, um, or was I? Okay. Uh, so you have these um, platforms where uh, ed where um, security actions are taken. National environment, of course, uh, is, is quite uh, obvious. Organic society builds up another level of protections by having interactions with people, building up trust, building up loyalty, building up enemies, um, and freedom. I make the distinction between freedom and liberty. Liberty is a is a value of um, modern society. It really began in the in the Enlightenment in the 18th century, and refers to relationship between man and the state. Freedom, on the other hand, refers to freedom from harsh necessity. There's a book by Amatya Sen, um, a Nobel Prize winning economist called development and freedom and he means the same thing that what most people in the world want is not the liberty uh, freedom from government if you will but they want freedom from necessity they want to have three squares a day they want to have protection they want clean water they want freedom from all the threats of poverty and and um, uh, scarcity as well as uh, predators, whether it's humans or, or animal. So um, what happens is that, uh, okay, we've got the freedom, another, a higher form of knowledge, the cultural and technical knowledge that it, it deals with uh, knowing who the clans are, who, who's your enemy, who's your friend, that sort of thing. Social obligation is part of organic society. You, you have loyalty, you have obligations, uh, there's reciprocity, uh, there's a social economy, a market economy which is spontaneous, it is not organized, in contrast to a political economy which is formed after the state, where you have rules, regulations, laws, uh, agencies, and so forth, uh, currency, um, 
and social concord refers to just the the level of conflict within a uh, social setting. And finally, the state. There are these platforms from which um, uh, security actions are, are launched. Uh, they tend to be mostly the, um, the counterpart, political counterparts of organic society, except for coercive institutions. In organic society, before the state is, is um, formed, there are no police forces, there's no organized army, there's no uh, specialized warrior class. Um, every, every person in organic society uh, performs some roles, multi, usually multi-roles. Specialization comes in with the state. That is, you have professional soldiers, you have professional politicians, professional uh, physicians, and so forth. Whereas at this level and this level, um, a man was a warrior, he was a veterinarian, he was a tracker, he was a hunter, had all these multi-skills. Um, and the state allows much greater specialization. So I took the, uh, I took those uh, 15 elements, 15 uh, security action uh, platforms, and you can make an algebraic formula out of it. That is, uh, at the primary level of existence, natural man, um, his security equals to the, uh, the sum of his will to live, the family, his knowledge, and the environment. And then when society is formed, that becomes one element of uh, his security. You add the uh, obligation and these other things, then you add that, and your final sum of security is indicated down there. So the, you know, the um, aside from the details, what it means is that organic society provides a, a big, a big uh, portion of security, lets people live longer, and then the state does it even better. If you look at human population growth, life expectancy, uh, since 10,000 BC, it goes something like this. It's pretty flat. And then around 1950, it goes up like that. Um, there, there's, oh, 18th century, it starts going up a little bit more. But the, um, as humans, as, uh, as we develop our institutions and the, we develop the right ones, we are extending our lifeline, or our, our life length. And um, I, I think I, I get at it in here. So this summarizes how life security is, um, is built up, it's constructed. It's, it's not something we're just given. And certainly in civil society, we think that it's a given. Well, it's not. It, it took thousands of years to, to get to the point where we are now. Now, if we assign um, the unit one to each one of these factors, it's 15, for perfect security, perfect will to live, perfect family, uh, perfect um, military, perfect uh, environment, and so forth. We get a sum of 15, okay? But if we have perfect security in all the things that protect us, we can be immortal. Uh, so that will not do. And if, if each one of these is zero, uh, there's, there's no way that life can continue. So 
we live between zero and 15, if you will. That is, um, it's in the, these are all imperfect at any given time. They will never be perfect. They, uh, they, they, they will become zero inevitably uh, where we have no security and um, everybody will expire, experience um, an EOL, which I call end of life. Uh, so zero is inevitable. 15 is impossible. So we live between zero and 15, as uh, mentioned there. Any questions so far? Earlier, you actually made this connection between uh, the lifetime of a man and the lifetime of a state as well. And I was curious if uh, the state can kind of be plugged into your equation as well with that somewhere between one and 14 lifespan and quality of security and all those aspects. I see, see the thing is that the state does not have an independent existence. Mm -hmm. It exists um, in our expectations, in our ideas, uh, in our habits, uh, the way the way we, we deal with other people. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's like levitation. You know, if, if everybody said there is no more state, there is no more state, it would vanish. Uh, because it, it has no no existence, so there's no way of measuring it. I can measure this. I mean, you can you can take um, life expectancy tables, and uh, over time, you, you can sort of break it down by by knowing the society or the group. And um, human life is a real thing. Uh, these other things, most concepts are not real things. They cannot be measured. Uh, so. Um, so when we, when we see a state uh, endeavoring to preserve itself, you'd rather think about that as a number of actors in the exactly. oligarchy or aristocracy or the autocrat trying to preserve themselves, not an institution. Trying to preserve actions, um, try, or taking actions, actually, mm -hmm. that will uh, preserve the habits of compliance within the population. So not... Um, the state itself, I mean, when we talk about homeland security, what does that mean? Has anybody ever seen that? Um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's an idea, it's a value, but it refers to, ultimately, it refers to, to us, to, to the people that, that comprise the homeland. Mm -hmm. um, by extension, it also protects the property of the individuals who comprise that, that population. Beyond that, um, you know, when we say we want to preserve values, uh, values are, are in the same the same ontological range as, as the state. Good ideas, but uh, nobody's ever seen one, and uh, they're impossible to measure. So, in a sense, I'm, I'm kind of a radical, barefoot empiricist, um, <laughs> devoted to to the ideas of David Hume. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, and, I, and this has been the problem of of security. Uh, generally, that we talk about state security or national security. You get right down to it. What does it mean? It means we have to protect people, protect individuals. And it also means that you cannot rely upon the state or this thing that we call the state to, to protect people. It can generate habits, it can generate actions that will let us live a little bit longer, but ultimately it, it will fail. And we have no assurance that the state, with all the habits and with all the people, will also will, will also be sustained. Um, if you look at history, of course, every 
there's the rise and fall of every state. And so no matter how we try, no matter how we, we, we justify what we do, um, it's, it's, it's a losing game in the end. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything else? Okay, well, let me continue with uh, application of, of some of these ideas. Uh, I'm sorry to take so long with all this, but um, I've been thinking about it for a long time. So we have levels of existence. With each, within each level of existence, there are four, five, or six uh, security action platforms that I've circulated. And each platform allows individuals to take actions that will affect either uh, positively or negatively the security of self or others or both. And um, it, this is just a, a template that I use. Uh, first of all, identify what is the level of existence, and secondly, the uh, platform. And then a simple grammatical statement of subject, predicate, and object, which, which encapsulizes, I think, um, who does what to whom. And uh, just with the aim of identifying security actions, uh, what is the intended consequence? What is the unintended consequence? Resources required and re versus re resources used. The effect of the life length of the object. And the object, of course, is back here. Um, you know, security, particularly in the uh, the secret history, security was attained both by protecting oneself and by killing the enemy. I mean, you're, you're more secure when your enemy's gone. And that's a lot of that happens in, in the secret history. Um, so the object, the, the individual or, or group that is subject to whatever action is taken uh, may suffer um, may suffer a, a loss of life. Um, so we have positive and negative uh, security actions. Um, and uh, usually taken to extend the life of the person who is uh, taking the action. So let me turn to several, four examples of, um, of security action. I call them monads, drawing from the metaphysics of uh, mathematician Leibniz in the 17th century. It's a good term. It refers to the, um, uh, what do I call it? Leibniz was a mathematician, and he said that the universe is composed of, of units that have almost soul-like qualities. Uh, you can think of them as, as kind of electrons or energy, some kind of energy. And so an action is, is the transfer of, of energy from one person to another uh, through action. So the first one, the first example I have, is where Temujin kills his half-brother Vector. Uh, the, the background of the story is, is this. Um, after Yesuge is poisoned to death by the Tartars, um, the, the family is, uh, his remaining family, including Temujin, is uh, ostracized by the tribe, by, by the Borjigid uh, clan. And they just desert this, this family, this widow and her children, and they are left to their own devices. And so the secret history tells of how Herlin would, would run back and forth along the river, picking berries, roots, anything to, to uh, keep her brood alive. Well, they live like this for a year or two, it's not specified. And um, 
they, they get the hang of it. They're, they live in the forest. They fish. They, they use blunt arrows to, to shoot birds out of trees and so forth. And um, a couple of times, um, Temujin catches a fish and he wants to take to his mother. And his elder half-brother, uh, Vector, takes the fish away and, and eats it himself. That happens several times with, with birds and fish. And so uh, obviously Temujin is, is not happy about this. So he, he calls on his brother, Kassar, and said, um, we can't let this happen again. And they, they take their bow and arrow and they, they shoot uh, Vector and they kill him. And um, it's a very ruthless act for, for a boy who's uh, 12 or 13. And, uh, but it, number one, it establishes uh, Temujin as the dominant male in the family. Um, it, uh, it also demonstrates his decisiveness and his ruthlessness. He will not let anybody stand in his way, will not let somebody take away things that he belonged to. In fact, he was going to give the fish to his mother, and so this has a certain tempering uh, effect on, on, on the, the deed. So this occurs at the natural level of existence, um, the family of the Chunbai clan, and um, they were basically living in, this, in a state of nature. They had a herd of nine horses, they had a gear, um, they, they had bows and arrows, they could shoot marmots or rats or whatever else they could find. Um, the family was the, the uh, platform uh, that is, uh, it was all about relationships of, of Temujin killing a half-brother. So this took place within the nuclear family. The initiator, initiator was Temujin, uh, the predicate is kills, the object was Bekter. Uh, the intended consequence was to eliminate the rival half-brother. The unintended consequence was recognition of Temujin as ruthless and decisive youth. This, of course, um, raised his, his status as a potential leader of the Mongol people. There were uh, resources used and, and required. Um, the actual effect was to end the life of Bekker, uh and um, so forth. So this is this is the way a single security action uh, is um, is analyzed. I'll just uh, go briefly through a couple more. There was one of the ancestors ancestors of uh, Temujin and the Mongols, where um, a hunter kills a deer. He's uh, slicing the deer up, and along comes Dobun uh, Dobun uh, Mergen, and he hadn't, he hadn't been very successful in his hunt. He asked for some of the deer, and so the, the hunter gives it to him. And he proceeds along and sees or meets a, an older man with his boy. The older man, they're both starving to death. So, he, uh, so the, the older man says, I'll give you my son for a piece of meat. Done deal. And so um, this was this giving of the venison to the older man saved his life, actually. And it also had consequences of, um, of changing the, the ancestry of uh, some of the, the Mongols. Another um, security action monad was uh, when uh, Jelme, the brother of uh, Borichu, one of the comrades of Temujin, uh, saved the life of Temujin during a battle. Uh, Temujin is shot in the neck with a poisoned arrow. And so Jelmy sucks the blood out to take the poison out. 
and um, during the night, uh, Temujin becomes very thirsty, and so um, so Jelmi steals into the camp of the enemy, steals some some idok or some fermented mare's milk, and uh, is able to uh, slake the thirst of, of Temujin. So those there's a clear um, security action by Jelmi to save to save uh, Temujin. So these these actions are really the components, and they're based on the uh, the existence of the friendship, of the reciprocity, of the loyalty of Jelme to to uh, Temujin. The last one, I'll say a little bit more about this one because uh, it's at the state level of existence, and it um, kind of confirms to me the the uh, the importance that the life of Genghis Khan had become. It uh, takes place at the level of uh, the state, and it consists of some very long passages in the secret history describing the precise duties of Temujin's bodyguards, how long they would be on watch, where they would be posted, um, how many how many would there be, and he had a very precise, uh, uh, very precise um, organization, table of organization of how his bodyguard would be organized. And, and he was not shy about saying, this is to protect me, to keep my life, to keep my golden life uh, intact. In the end, uh, Temujin, or Genghis Khan by this time, falls off a horse during uh, a hunting expedition. And because of complications, he passes away, dies in his bed. Nobody who would have known that uh, this would have happened because of the dangerous life that he had. Certainly the bodyguards were, uh, he could only do that at the level of the state. Only when he became Khan did he have the power to designate the sons of tribal leaders as his bodyguard. This bodyguard became a, um, a kind of uh, military academy for future generals. He could see how these people behaved. They would go into, into battle with him, and he would appoint them to, to very high positions if, if they performed. So um, it was also a way of taking hostages from other from other tribes and clans. He would, uh, usually the, the bodyguard uh, consisted of uh, sons of chieftains, of, of other uh, tribal leaders. So if they misbehaved, if they seceded, then he had their sons to, to uh, uh, dispose of. Yes? Uh, was, it, was it these guards who buried him? Probably, but um, Again, the the, uh, the secret history is not uh, is not very forthcoming, not very descriptive. Of this, in fact, the, the death of Chinggis Khan in the secret history is described as he ascended into heaven. That's all we know. <laughs> well, uh, I recently saw a documentary where um, there's this sacred mountain, uh, Burkhan Khaldun. Yeah. In uh, north, uh, northeast Mongolia, mm -hmm. and they believe that he was buried there. Um, there was a long procession that uh, they, they wanted to keep his death secret, which because uh, fear of demoralization, fear of of uh, tribal uprisings, that, that they knew that that the old man was dead. So they um, they took him up to this, uh, probably up to Burkhan Kolon, and um, they have. Um, Discovered that there are some some structures up there, 
possibly a, a burial ground. And this was his sacred mountain. This was his encampment. So there's a high prob probability that that uh, he was buried there. The other thing that I found interesting um, is that um, the uh, the funeral cortege was kept secret, and those who saw it were killed immediately. Those who knew where he was buried were killed on the spot. Um, in a way, uh, I don't think it's, it's unlikely that a lot of treasure was buried with him, so it wasn't to keep the secret. I think that the bodyguards were embarrassed. I think they were afraid of people finding out that they hadn't done their job. These guys were supposed to keep uh, Chinggis Khan alive, and they, they failed. Uh, admission of failure to to, uh, to recognize his death. In any event, these bodyguards were a very important part. They were the core of the army. They were the core of the state. They were given additional um, additional duties and responsibilities besides merely bodyguards. They had to uh, provide the food. They had to provide for the hunting. And so they were kind of an administrative structure, but not, but also they were the core of the military. So anyhow, that, um, that was a, a supreme act of uh, protection that um, that Genghis Khan was able to take to protect himself, but it could only take place within this level of existence of the state where the state existed. Um, and so I, I just go through there. So let me uh, conclude very quickly. Um, except for anthropology, the humanist and social science disciplines have focused largely on contemporary social societies, material, cultural products, and events. Such concentration is supremely valuable in, in safely navigating through the shoals and whirlpools created by modernity. At the same time, we are like sailors who only see weather and surface, or travelers who only know geography but not geology. Such knowledge is desirable but fails to address deeper questions of meaning and existence. Learning about Mongol solutions to survival challenges may seem academic, but it also informs us about how modern civil society emerged from tribal societies. It may be a fourth level of existence built on prior levels, which were constructed for the purpose of living, living longer. Moreover, civil society should not be seen as rejection of those previous layers, but like the cities of ancient Troy, built on the base of successive strata. In sum, the biography of Genghis Khan and an anthropocentric security theory offer a perspective on human development and Asiatic state formation. The secret history's message is that protection of individual life is the primary objective of human action. Thank you very much. <laughs> Questions, comments, criticisms, denials? Did they initiate this thing looking for his grave? And, and really, uh, I mean, did they make a TV thing about it? Or there, there have been. I've never seen that. I've read. There've been a number of books. There's uh, uh, John Mann wrote a book on Genghis Khan, and he started by by looking for the for the grave, and um, Jack Weatherford was also invited. So a number of books have been have been written that were. Originally motivated by the search for his his grave. Well, this was a TV thing that the Japanese ate for and did. I haven't seen it since. It I, I haven't seen that one either. But uh, okay. no, it's it's kind of uh, 
like the search for the Holy Grail, I suppose, you know, <laughs> Asiatic style. Well, ground radar, maybe. Normal, that, that should help. Yeah. A normal ongoing, uh, wouldn't their bodies be given to nature? Isn't that what would normally Tibetans, be? Tibetans uh, are most famous for that. Uh, Mongol, the Mongols would, would also do that as well, that is uh, open burial, so that there could be re-nourishment of, of the, the animal life. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, speaking of the Japanese and, and Genghis Khan, there's also the legend that um, he didn't die. He did not, Genghis Khan did not die, but he was secreted over to Japan, and he became the famous um, samurai warrior, Yoshitsune. So, uh, <laughs> the, uh, and, and as far as the, the, um, the sacred mountain, uh, Burkhan Khaldun, this this is uh, off limits. There's a, a fence around it. There's a guardian. Uh, uh, there's custodians of it. And during the Soviet period, you know, Mongolia was was controlled by the Russians from 1920 to about 1992. During that period, the um, the the Soviets saw any reference to to Genghis Khan as an attempt to revive. Um, Bourgeois nationalism. That is, uh, he was he had conquered. Well, he had set off the, the conquest of, of Russia back in the 13th century, and so of course he was he was an un unwelcome figure. But also there's fear that he would be revived as a uh, central figure in contemporary Mongolian nationalism. During the um, after after the Soviets left, uh, you see the um, there was the Genghis Khan holiday in. Uh, Genghis Khan vodka, uh, Genghis Khan chocolate bars. I mean, uh, children are named Temujin or Kabul. Uh, there's, there's been a tremendous revival. Uh, a, and I remember the first on my first visit to Mongolia, I uh, had an interview with the uh, former prime minister of the country, and I suggest we take a picture together. It was uh, memory of, of the event, and there's this big picture of, of uh, Genghis Khan, of a painting, a wall. All hanging. I said, well, that would be good. And we went over there, and he, and he thought, no, that's not so good. And we moved to another, to another painting. He still had the sense that uh, it wasn't wise to uh, refer back to this, this, uh, this progenitor of, of the Mongol state. And you go into a bookstore in, in uh, Ulaanbaatar, and they have these big um, genealogy tables. And of course, there's Genghis Khan at the, at the top, and then all the, the little <laughs> branches and roots. Um, certainly, I think it's one out of every uh, every person on earth. One out of uh, every two thousand, I think, has uh, some Mongolian DNA. Yeah. So. Uh, Probably spread in the world. Right? Yes, yes. I, I checked mine too, by the way. It's not there. No luck there. <laughs> no luck there. No. So I have no claims. Well, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, one of these core principles you have that built up this. Uh, you're thinking here, and that is that uh, the, the political state is, is helping to prolong life. And I'm just reflecting on these pre-modern societies. I mean, the, that, that idea to me seems rather uh, democratic. And of course, a uh, model state like most pre-modern states does not value all the lives of its members of its polity uh, equally. And of course, the system, uh, as we've been talking about, all the people that died just to preserve the secret of his death. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, his 
security was very important in his state. Uh, but I'm wondering if you could just sort of uh, thread that needle for me about sure. how that impacts the other people living in the model state or, or how you consider that. Good, good question. Um, actually, uh, the, the wars were, if you're on the winning side, the wars were really good for <laughs> lawyers because uh, it gave you access to slaves, to, to as many women as you could, you could capture, all the wealth and clothing and, and horses. Horses were really uh, a form of wealth, and they still are in, in Mongolia. So uh, to be a, a successful warrior and to have a good leader, uh, I mean, that, that, that's as good as gold for, for the Mongols. And when you have all these good things, you can live longer, and you can live a happier life, and you can live a fuller life. If you have to take it away from other people, so be it. But that was the basis of the Mongol economy. Uh, it was a predatory economy. Yeah. Uh, it was not based on agriculture. It was not based on industrial production. Mm -hmm. It was based on taking what these other societies had. And, and certainly, um, the average Mongol could justify his, his taking, taking these things by the fact that he didn't have them and they shouldn't have them. They're, besides, they're, um, they're of, a, of a lower civilization that were... Um, that were uh, critical and uh, looking down on Mongols, so they deserve what they get from, from their standpoint. And the same thing about um, later, see, the, the, there was no change in the behavior of the Mongols after, um, after the state was formed. What they did is they just expanded, so they, were, they, they expanded into uh, present-day uh, Tajikistan and Afghanistan and, and uh, Turkmenistan and, and, and Russia. Uh, and basically carrying on what they had done before, but absorbing uh, captive warriors and giving them a chance to, to take part in, in that. It was, it was strictly predatory. Mm -hmm. It was not based on equality. It was not, it was not based on democracy. Um, they were doing what they did best. And um, they, uh, they were curious. They learned. They adapted. Uh, Chinggis Khan... You, um, would would uh, employ Chinese, uh, Persians, anybody else. When when they took a city, they would uh, kill all the adult males uh, if if they had resisted. They would kill the rulers. Um, they would take women as concubines or slaves. And then anybody who had a skill, uh, whether if it was a skill in handicrafts or in um, in in uh, Making gunpowder or something like that, they would be saved. They would they would be put to work in in the skill that they had. The interesting thing is that once the wars were over, basically uh, uh, subdued, you have the uh, the flourishing of the uh, of the Silk Road, and because of the Silk Road, the West acquired the compass, gunpowder, printing. And these uh, Francis Bacon said these were the three. Three foundations of um, the three material foundations of, of uh, the um, the expansion of, of culture and economy in Western Europe in the, in the 16th century. The um, and when 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 the uh, when the Ottomans closed when, when the Ottoman Empire uh, captured Constantinople in 1453, this stopped the flow of goods and and, and things on the Silk Road. And it prompted the explorers, the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Italians, to uh, find other routes to these fabled lands that Marco Polo had described. 
so the um, the Mongol Empire was a trigger, I think, for modernization, and I think that we should not think we should not consider their contribution as entirely negative. Uh, they did create this Pax Mongolica, which encompassed um, well, from the Black Sea to to the Sea of Japan, right. and um, uh, even even India, even though India was not invaded. Um, one of the descendants, Babur, uh, established the Mughal Empire. I mean, Mughal is derived from Mongol. And the same thing with Tamerlane in, in Central Asia. So the, the impact was, was much greater than just merely this, this empire, which, which lasted, uh, well, lasted 250 years in, in Russia and much less in China or in these other places. So it's a, it's a fascinating subject. Okay. okay, well, thank you all very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.